welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Great to have you guys here. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Robin began his message on uh, some inescapable truths in this world. And he mentioned about a particular hockey team, a playoff dis- disappointment. Uh, he mentioned taxes as a, as, a, as a guarantee in this world, and then death, on which he spoke on, which was a great message. And so if you haven't heard it yet, I encourage you to check it out. Powerful message about what the death and burial of Jesus means for you and I today. Very, very powerful message. But I want to add one to the list as one of those guarantees in life, and that is conflict. You're all familiar with the verse, right? Where two or three are gathered, there will be conflict. (laughs) That's not a verse in the Bible, but based on how accurate it is in real life, it probably could be. And, uh, And so really, whenever you get two people or two groups together, you're kind of waiting for conflict. It's, it's bound to happen at some point. And that's simply because no two people are exactly alike. Even if you've got siblings or even twins, they are going to experience conflict because even in the same household with the same parents, they're going to experience things slightly different, uh, differently. And so they're going to have their own unique perspective on life. And then you, you think about the drama that comes from friends in school. Do you remember, remember grade six, grade seven, grade eight, right? Where, you know, all your insecurities are put on for show and everyone just picks on those things and highlights those things. And one day, you, they, you know, they're friends with you. The next day, they're not and you don't know why and all the, the drama, drama, drama of, uh, of grade school. And then, and then you get marriage. And, and I mean, conflict, again, is guaranteed in marriage because you have one plus one equals one. That's bad math. That's, that's, that's guaranteeing conflict in that case here. And, and it's amazing that this is someone you've chosen. This is someone you've, you've welcomed into your life. This is per, someone you've dedicated to love, and yet there's going to be conflict. Sometimes it begins on the honeymoon. Sometimes it be, has begun even before the honeymoon. But it's going to happen. And then on top of that, till you make matters worse, you're going to get the conflict that comes just from just misunderstandings. I've seen it many times where, where a couple is engaged in a, in a conversation with one another, and really it's two different conversations, they just don't realize it, that they're talking past each other, and they're, they're addressing what they're hearing, but that's not what the other person's saying, and they're doing the exact same thing, and so you get all kinds of opportunities for conflict, but fortunately, we know that God's people in the church, there's no conflict. Isn't that wonderful? So let's just close in prayer of Thanksgiving, and that's not the case, right? In fact, it's, it's sad, really is sad, but Christians fight over the silliest of things at times. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that all conflict is bad. In fact, there's, there's reason for conflict, even in the church. I think of 500 plus years ago, Martin Luther and others, they led what is now known as the Reformation of the church. That was massive conflict. That was a massive battle to, to restore the gospel at the central place that it wasn't through indulgences, it wasn't through your performance, that you and I are saved, how? By grace, full stop, by what God's done. And simply we're now expressing our faith in that gospel, we're receiving that gift that God has done for us. 
And so in that case, that conflict was good. That, that conflict was necessary, and it led to, to change in the church. But sadly, too often, churches have fought over much less significant things. For example, the color of the carpet, or how loud the music should be during the time of worship through singing, or even the kinds of songs that should be sung, whether they be hymns or choruses or so forth, right? So there's, there's all kinds of things. And quite frankly, I could ask you guys for some of the dumb things you've heard argued about in churches, but I do want to finish sometime today, so we won't, we won't do that. <clears throat> but those are the extremes, <clears throat> right, where you've got the extreme of conflict, good conflict with Martin Luther and the Reformation and dumb conflict over the, the color of paint or carpet, and those are the extremes. And if that only was where conflict existed, it would be really easy to address conflict. But the reality is most conflict exists somewhere in between, somewhere in between those extremes in the gray areas where it's not so clear, it's not so obvious. And yet, it's in that conflict where we're ready to burn the lifeboat that we're in together because we're so set on our ways because we see it in black and white terms. So for example, I've met with many couples and they might, they might be arguing or having conflict over how do they raise a child? How much screen time is appropriate? How do you discipline that child? What are, what are some of the behaviors that you want to, to instill in them? Might have all kinds of conflict areas or, or other areas of conflict in marriages, how often they should have sex or, or even what kind of friends the couple should have. That now that you're married, you shouldn't be hanging out with those friends anymore because they're bad influences. Or maybe even family, in-laws, and so forth. So there's all kinds of areas for conflict, and the answer isn't obvious because, it's, again, it's in the gray. It's not the black and white. But then you have conflict that's a result of hurt, hurtful actions, hurtful words, deep wounds from those who've hurt us, wounds that are from the result of betrayal or disrespect, you know, unfaithfulness from a loved one. That, that unfaithfulness could be an affair, but an unfaithfulness could also be through how you speak of them. How you talk about them to other people is a sign of, uh, could be potentially unfaithfulness. Or maybe the, the wounds that arise from careless words, careless actions. So it's an unintentional hurt, but it's still a hurt nonetheless. And then maybe even the ones that are the hardest to live with, the things that hurt us but are done in love. The, the words that just cut right deep into the heart of our heart, but yet the motive and their action was love. So the question is, what do we do then? How do we, how do we move past these hurts? How do we address the conflict? Because the reality is, because conflict can be good, it's not about avoiding conflict. It's not about figuring out how to, how to you know, foolproof our relationships, whether it be our marriage or our parenting or our friendships or even here as a church, to guarantee that there'll never be conflict. Because sometimes that conflict is required for growth. It's required for us to mature. And so it can be really healthy. But how do we move past it? How do we navigate our way through it where we don't lose the relationship as a result? And you see, that's the position that, that the Apostle Paul found himself with the church in Corinth here. That there's been a, a deep offense because what he's done is he's offered them a pretty strong rebuke, pretty strong words that were hard to hear from them, but they were motivated out of love. And then on top of that, you've got at least one person, if not a group of people, who are actively trying to character assassinate Paul, undermine him, undermine his message and his authority. And so now you have all this conflict between Paul and the church in Corinth. 
But the good news for us is what it does is it shows us that pathway now. How do we move through it? How do we navigate our way through it so that we too can experience healing relationships? And so that's what we're going to try and look at. Today is, is simply what holds us together. What's the motivation to fight for the relationship? And then next week, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at how do we, what's the way through that? How do we reconcile and restore uh, trust and relationship that's been broken? So we got a long passage to look at this morning, so we're just going to kind of pray, and then we're going to jump into it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've all experienced conflict. We've all experienced disappointment. We've all experienced hurt. We've all got wounds. And so how do we, how do we deal with those wounds? How do, we, how do we fight for relationships? How do we restore those relationships? Especially when those relationships are, are so close to us with our children or our parents, our friends, and especially in our marriages where there's so much conflict. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this morning your words would be life to us, would encourage us, and that we would see how you're working. So we're going to trust you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. I have a friend, he likes to use this, this phrase. He says, sermonettes, so little hollow light sermons, produce Christianettes. Little, light, hollow Christians. So we're not in for that, right? We're not in for light, hollow Christians. And so we try to offer you guys some, some meat, some, some good nutrition in our messages. And so that's what we're going to do again this morning, hopefully. So you're going to have to put on your Bible scholar hat, is basically what I'm saying. Because we're going to look at some of the history or the background of what was going on in Paul and in Corinth's life to give us some context. Otherwise, this letter kind of feels like you're jumping into a movie three quarters of the way through, and you don't really know what's happening. So we're just going to kind of do a quick rundown of the history of Corinth as a church. So Paul, on his second missionary journey, and you can read about this in Acts 18 if you want, but on his second missionary journey, Paul founded the church in Corinth. It was in the early 50s, or just, you know, 50 AD, so nothing in four to that 50, right? So about 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, after the cross. And, and Paul came in, and he meets a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, you might be familiar with those names. They're originally from Rome, but they got kicked out of Rome when the emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out uh, of Rome. And so now they're hanging out in, in Corinth and they connect with Paul. They were Jewish. And so they were, met Paul at the synagogue there and they heard Paul teaching about Jesus, the Messiah. And Priscilla and Aquila were all in. They bought into it. And that started the church in Corinth. And initially, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila were all tent makers, so that's what they were doing. Paul was working part-time as a tent maker and then part-time kind of founding the church. And he did that for a little while until eventually Timothy and Silvanius, or Silas, he's got you know, a nickname there, uh, same person, they come down and they all now are forming the church together and that allows Paul to go full-time with the church. And as you would expect, the Jews in the city weren't happy, and so they began to persecute Paul, and they tried to get Paul arrested and tried to get him thrown out of the city and so forth, to the point where Paul was scared. And so in Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, I want to share these verses with you. It says, And the Lord said to Paul in the night of a, by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I felt very strongly to share that, those two verses because I think there's someone listening to this message, maybe in this room or maybe online, that need to hear the great apostle Paul was scared to share his faith. And God says to him, don't be afraid anymore. They're not going to hurt you. They're not going to harm you. I'm going to protect you. 
Go and share your faith. And so that's what he did. He began to share his faith, and he was in Corinth for the next 18 months, and the church began to grow. And now they had Gentile believers as well, the Jewish believers, and, and it, was, it was very successful, and he felt now it was time to leave. And so he left Corinth and went directly east across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, which eventually then he made his way back to Antioch in, north, in Syria, so north of Israel. And he, he stayed there for some time. We don't know how long he stayed there for, but eventually he begins his third missionary journey. And the goal of this third missionary journey was to go revisit now these churches that he had planted and to strengthen the disciples, it says. So you might think of it as a bit of his reunion tour of sorts, right? Now, he shows up in Ephesus again at some point. Again, if you kind of remember the map, right, we have the Aegean Sea, and and that sort of, you know, uh, creates a bit of a, a, a bay of sorts, I guess. It's more than a bay. It's pretty big. But on the east side of the Aegean Sea is Ephesus. On the west side of the Aegean Sea is Corinth. And then north of that is Philippi and Macedonia, right? And so he's in Ephesus, and now he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. This is where it gets a little confusing, so pay attention. You might need to make some notes on this one, right? Because the first letter that Paul wrote is not 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is actually at least the second letter that Paul wrote. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians, he's referencing a letter he wrote previously. Now, we don't know what this letter is. It's been lost to time. But what we do know about it is at the very least, in that letter, because Paul referenced it in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how he rebuked them because of allowing immorality into the church, that they were allowing worldly people into that church and and mixing with them to a point where it was actually beginning to corrupt them. And so he, he basically said to them that you can't, you can't tolerate that kind of corruption within the church. And so sometime after that, we don't, again, we don't know when, but he now wrote his second letter, which is 1 Corinthians. So the second letter is first. Got it? All right. Now, we don't have the exact reasons for this letter because we don't have the, the letter they wrote to Paul. But what we can do is sort of play a game like listening to a conversation on the telephone where you hear one side of the conversation. You can kind of surmise or guess what the other part of the conversation is, is, is happening. And so what we see here is in beginning in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul, he references this letter and he says, now to the questions you have. And so now he's going to begin to answer some of those questions. And they're all sorts of different topics. Topics like marriage and, and sex and marriage and divorce and remarriage. And he's going to talk about spiritual gifts and he's going to talk about communion and he's going to talk about um, all sorts of different things, even about like eating food that you might have been sacrificed to idols and giving and so forth. So there's a lot of issues that he addresses answering their questions that they ask him. But the first six chapters is another rebuke, another correction that Paul offers them because he says, I've heard some things about the church in Corinth. I heard that there's, there's factions, there's divisions, that some of you are, are boasting that you're, you know, the, you're of the, uh, the, the, the church of Paul or you're a disciple of Paul or you're a di- disciple of, of, uh, of Peter or you're a disciple of Apollos and even some who are the disciples of Christ, right? The non-denominational group. And so you've got that, that, that church split. And, and again, you know, I see it today. We're doing all that, whether I'm Baptist or I'm Reformed or I'm Calvinist or, or I'm uh, Pentecostal or I'm Charismatic or I'm Vineyard or I'm EMCC or I'm Presbyterian, all sorts of different things that you would associate yourself as. And so there's all kinds of things happening just like today. There was one man who was sleeping with his father's wife. And so that needed to be addressed because they weren't correcting it. 
And, and really the answer there was to cast them out to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now please understand, that was not a punishment. The point of doing that, it says, was for the destruction of his flesh, that it might lead to the salvation of his spirit, that he would actually come to Jesus. And so there was a correction to this. There was a hopefulness that would lead to repentance. It was out of love. They were suing each other, taking each other to Roman courts to solve internal matters that were going on. He rebuked them, rebuked them for visiting pro prostitutes for sex, much like today, people use pornography. And then we could also even deduce that there was, there was either at least a person or even a group of people, as we said, that were beginning to undermine Paul, beginning to undermine his authority in the, in the church as an apostle. So that was the letter, 1 Corinthians, was the second letter. Well, what this led to was, I guess it wasn't well received, so then Paul visits. He, he kind of sails across the Aegean Sea, leaving Ephesus, goes visit Corinth for a time, and this is what's referred to as a very, very painful visit. It's a harsh visit where, again, he has to correct them. Because what was happening now is that, again, that person was beginning to undermine Paul. He was beginning to say things about Paul that, you know, Paul's not really in it for you. He's in it for himself. He's just using you. He's very arrogant. He's very boastful. He thinks better of himself. And the reality is he's not that good of an apostle. He's not of the same level as, as James and Peter. You know, Paul's way down here, if he's even an apostle, really. We're not even sure. I mean, he's sort of just given himself that name. And so they've, they've, they've all these accusations against him. Uh, he's only in it for the money. And that, you know, he's not trustworthy. He's, he's very flaky, very flighty. He's with you today, and he's against you tomorrow. So you can't really trust him. And so this voice was constantly being shared to the church in Corinth, and they were beginning to question can we actually trust Paul? And so there's the vision there. So he makes his quick trip to address it, but it wasn't received well. It led to more conflict. And so this leads to the third letter that Paul writes, which is, you guessed it, not 2 Corinthians, right? So this is on letter third, letter, the third one, which again, we don't have. It's been lost to time, but we know it exists because Paul referenced it in 2 Corinthians. And he calls it a very sorrowful letter. Because again, it would have been another sorrowful rebuke towards the church in Corinth. But again, he felt it was necessary because of the conflict going on between him and the church. And why was that necessary? Well, because if there's a, an undermining of Paul's authority, then it's an easy to reject Paul and what he's teaching. And now this other group of people can lead them astray. And that was constantly happening in the church. And again, we don't know exactly what was going on, what, it, what direction they wanted to lead these people. But based on what Paul goes on to write in 2 Corinthians, it's safe to say, I think, in my opinion, that they were leading people back to the law, back to the rules, back to the performance, back to trying to earn God's favor, trying to do it in your own strength. And they were leading them away from the grace that Paul was offering them. So it was really important to correct this. But again, it wasn't received well. It caused a lot of sorrow. And so, um, uh, so now the question is, well, what's going to happen here? And, and so what, actually, I'm sorry, I said it wasn't received well. The visit wasn't received well, but this letter was received well. So what happened was Paul then, he travels north uh, around the Aegean Sea, and he ends up in Macedonia. That's the, kind of the province, and settles into the city of Philippi where he meets Titus, who delivered that third letter that was lost. And Titus now gives the response to Paul as to what happened. And that it was hard and was sorrowful, but they understood what was going on. They could see where it was coming from. And now Paul's going to write 2 Corinthians, which is actually the fourth letter. Got it? Pretty simple, right? 
All right. So the first 11 verses of this, this letter now in 2 Corinthians is sort of the introduction. It's his kind of way of saying hello and bringing them up to speed as to what happened in, that, in Asia and so forth that brought them to Philippi because they would have known about that. But now beginning in verse 12, he's going to get into it with them and he's going to start by reaffirming his love for them in order that he, they can eventually understand his motivation. So beginning in verse 12, it says, for our proud confidence is this, our boasting is in this, that the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. So what he's saying to them here is that our motivation to love you has been led by the Spirit, by led by God's grace and not by the flesh. <clears throat> now you will remember, because we talk a lot about the flesh and trying to find the flesh, because I think in much of Christianity today, the flesh is not well-defined. The flesh is not your old nature. It's not your sinful nature. As, as Robin did so well last week preaching on that old man, that sinful nature, that was crucified with Christ. It's gone. It no longer exists. It was buried. And you have a new nature, a righteous nature. You're someone good now. And that's wonderful. That's good news. But this, this thing called the flesh, which is our old master, is still around. Whereas the old man died, the flesh did not. The slave died, not the master. So the flesh is still hanging around, still waging war, it says in Romans 7, attacking our minds, trying to control us again, trying to make us instruments of unrighteousness. And so it's motivated selfishly. And so you think about the, the, the fleshly love is all about our own, what we get out of it, our own self-pleasure, our own importance, our own power, our own security. It's all, it's all about making sure that I'm okay, even my own protection my own comfort. That's what the flesh is trying to come after. And Paul's saying to them, that's not what motivated me. I didn't do those letters. I didn't do that visit. I, I'm not, I didn't plant this church for me. I did it for you. I'm motivated to love you and what's in your best interest. That's what I'm offering to you. And so that's what he was saying to them. Verse 13, for we write nothing else to you than what we read and understand. And I hope you'll understand it to the end. Just as you also partially did understand this, that we are your reason to be proud as you are also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, he, what he's saying basically is this, is that, that I'm not flip-flopping. I'm not with you one moment and against you the next moment. That what you're reading is what you got. I mean, we're, we're consistent in our hearts to you. We're consistent in our love for you. That isn't changing. <clears throat> and so he, it's important that he gets that across to them. Now, I think what's happened here is that they were disappointed, though. I mean, they received that, that third letter well, but they were disappointed because they expected that Paul was going to come visit them. So at some point, maybe when he visited them in person, uh, or maybe when he wrote that letter, the plan was that he was going to leave Ephesus and go to Macedonia, or sorry, go to, go to Corinth, up to Macedonia, and then back to Corinth and back to Ephesus. So he's saying that basically in verses 15 and 16. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you be helped on my way, on my journey to, to, through to Judea. And so they were expecting Paul to come, but then they got wind that he wasn't coming, that instead he was going to go up to Asia. And so they were hurt by that and they were disappointed by that. And again, his critics were using that as the opportunity to say, see, he's flaky, he's flighty, he's flip-flopping on you. He's not really for you. And so he say, he's basically saying, the accusation is there. So let's put it on the table. And that's verse 17. 
Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what purpose do I purpose according to the flesh that, that with me there will be yes and yes and no and no at the same time? He's, he's so wise here. He's, he's addressing the conflict head on. Do you think I'm flighty? Because that's the flesh. The flesh is flighty because the flesh is all about what's comfortable in the moment. And so yes right now, no later on. Again, it's, it's like grade six, right? Where, you know, they like you today, they don't like you tomorrow. And then they're best friends with you the next day and then they hate you, the, you know, two weeks later. Up and down, up and down sort of thing. And that was the accusation against Paul because that's the nature of the flesh. It's all about self-protecting. And so yes, I will be with you. It's in my best interest, but I'll be against you if it's in my best interest. And so Paul's saying, is that, is that how I love you? Is that what you're seeing? No, because my love is not motivated by the flesh. The love is not motivated by what comforts me. My love for you is motivated by God's grace. And so he's, because of that, he gets to address the conflict from that angle, which I think is so brilliant. Verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanius and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. In essence, what he's saying is I'm the same person that preached the gospel to you. I'm the same person that, that faced that persecution for you. I'm that same person that fought for you and loved and worked for you. That hasn't changed. And the message I shared, that message of yes in God is my heart for you as well because that's what's motivating that love. The love you were seeing was not Paul's love. It was Christ in Paul is what he's saying. In essence, what he's trying to say is just as God is for you, so also I am for you. What a great message that is. We've, we try to teach that to our kids over and over again, a mantra in life that we just over and over repeated to them that mama and daddy are for them. Mama and daddy are on their side. And, and we felt that was even more important than saying we love you, although we do say that often, but we wanted them to know that we were on their side because not everything that we do feels good. Not everything we do do they like and enjoy. But why we do it, what motivates us to do that is our love for them. And, and growing up, I was so blessed to have parents that were like that. That my mom especially, I always knew my mom was on my side. And that I didn't always agree with it. I didn't always like what she was saying or doing for me. But I could come back to that, that simple truth that says, but I know she loves me. I know she's for me. And therefore, I can accept it. And I never had any problems with my mom. <laughs> she's not here, but she's online. So... Uh, it's not true, right? But that, there's some hope there, though, that if I, if I know that she's for me, I can listen to her. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. He's saying over and over again, I'm for you. Just as God's for you, I'm for you. I'm on your side. And so he's gonna, he's gonna build off of that now as to the why, not only because God's for you and I'm for you, why, what bonds us together in verse 21. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us a spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Those two verses are the key to understanding this passage, I think. The key point that I want to make to, you, to all of us this morning is in what really allows us to get through conflict. 
See, what Paul's appealing to is what unites us. He, what he's appealing to is what brings us together. And that, that what unites us is greater than what divides us, is what's greater than what, what separates us. And I think that's so important in all kinds of relationships. See, it's really important um, that when you're in conflict is that you remember that you're, you're united together and that ultimately you have the same agenda, ultimately you have the same goal. And if you have that as an understanding, you can now work your way through the conflict because often that conflict is a difference of opinion. Let's, let's do this way, politically, as an example. Right now, there's a big debate going on. Um, oh, dear, I'm stepping into it. There's a big debate going on with guns right now in the U.S., which sadly in my mind has been imported into Canada because of different reasons, right? But there's a debate going on in the U.S. And, and if you've watched any of that debate going on, you would think that half the country wants to do something about guns and half the country actually wants people to die from guns. Is that really true? Do, do you really think that there's, a, there's half of America who actually are enjoying children being gunned down? Of course not. What if, what if both parties could start with the idea, you know what, we don't like this. We hate this. We're appalled by this. And we want to stop having children be gunned down in gun violence of all sorts. And if they could start there and they say, well, we think this is the best way to do it, taking guns off, the, you know, eliminating guns. And, and the other side will say, well, we think that there's another way to do it. Well, now you just have difference of opinions as to how to achieve the same goal. Now you can actually have a discussion. But what happens is they forget that. And intentionally, by the way, because it's politics, right? They're just using it as a wedge on both sides to make their point. But the same is true in marriages now, where you forget that you have the same goal. And the same goal, whether the conflict be about parenting, the same goal is we want to see our children thrive. We want to see our children do well. So how do we do that? Well, you think parent A, that the best way to do that is to be really, really strict on them. And parent B, you think the best way to do that is just sort of sit back and let things fly and fall together. Well, now you've got a difference of opinion. But if you understand that you want to get to the same end, the children thriving, doing well, now you can negotiate, you can have that discussion as to how do you do that. And maybe it's not as strict, but maybe it's not as lenient, maybe it's somewhere in between where you've kind of land together. Or, or maybe there's conflict in terms of the marriage, in terms of how we communicate to one another. Again, if we start with the premise that, that I'm for you, that I'm one with you, and I love you, and you love me, then what you're saying to me is motivated by your love for me. And it's hard, and it's, hard. it's, it's not easy to receive, but, but I'm willing to listen now. Help me figure out what you're trying to communicate to me. I hear you're saying this. And, and what, you're, what I'm hearing sounds like you're attacking me, but I don't think you're attacking me because that's not your heart. So what am I missing? Oh, I'm glad you said that because this is what I meant instead. And so they're realizing that, that the person's not against them and that what unites them is bigger than what divides them. And I think as believers, we've got something even better than just goodwill. 
Even better than just this idea that what we want to see outcome in our marriage or in our friendships and our relationships, we want to see success. As believers, we have something so powerful to bring us together. And Paul hammers this point home numerous times. I want to share two passages with you that really, I think, make it very clear abundantly that it's worth seeing. The first one's in Philippians 2, beginning of verse 1. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, do you think there's any encouragement in Christ? Yeah. So it's almost like tongue-in-cheek here, right? If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. See, there was people fighting. He says, come together. And that basis is Jesus. Do nothing, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't be motivated by that fleshly love, which is about what makes me comfortable, but be motivated by the Spirit. What's in another person's best interest? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but those for the interests of others. And then again, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. So remember, when we were going through Ephesians, we said those first three chapters were all about our identity in Christ, who you are as a result of the cross, how God's made you new, and you're a new creation and dwelt with by the Holy Spirit, and that power that the Holy Spirit now lives through us. And then we said the next three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, were all about how we live that out. And I find it interesting that the first thing Paul hammers home right from the beginning of what it means to live it out is based on our unity in Christ. So he says, live in a manner worthy of the calling, which you've been called, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Notice you don't have to create unity. You don't have to build it, but we're called to maintain it. We're called to preserve it. Why? Because there's one body. There's one church. One church. If you were to leave New Life and join another church, you never left the church because there's only one church. And there's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. You know, Richard didn't get a different Holy Spirit than me from, from Michael and, and, and from, from Lori. We've got the same spirit just as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that isn't talking about water. It's talking about that baptism that Robin talked about last week, being united in Jesus, in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. And there's one God and Father of all of us who is through all of us and in all of us. So what does that mean for you and I today? It's critical absolutely critical that we remember what unites us, and that's Jesus. And because Jesus is what unites us, Jesus is always bigger than what divides us. That's wonderful good news. See, I might have conflict with John, and he and I don't see eye to eye on something, and, and we're kind of against each other on this, and we're, we're struggling. What, what allows me to fight for that relationship? Because that's my brother always my brother. No matter what happens, no matter what we go through, that's my brother because we're one in Jesus together. And Jesus is greater than the division. 
And so if that's my basis, I can come back to it and say, okay, one Lord, one Spirit. Spirit's in him. He's clearly not listening to it. I mean, that's obvious, right? Because clearly, oh, maybe I'm not listening to it. Okay, Lord, what's he saying to me now? What might you be saying through him to me? Because I know he's my brother and he's for me. And so that, that union, that bond in Christ allows us to come together. Think about the power of that. Because within the church, we've lost that. We've forgotten that. And there's so much division within our churches now. And again, some of those divisions aren't even about our faith. For, or Sorry, they are about our faith, but not primary to our faith. And in the sense, what I mean is some churches divide over, are, are you able to speak in tongues today? So some denominations that ended at the end of the first century. I don't know why, but that's, how not, that's what they believe. And then there's others who demand it, who require it, and say that if you don't have it, then maybe, maybe you're not saved. At the very least, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And so there's division over that. There's division over giving or tithing. There's a division over which Bible you use and styles of worship. All of those things are related to our faith, but they're secondary to our faith. They don't matter to our, the core of our faith. They don't change anything that happened on the cross. And what's happened is that that division has separated the churches from each other, and I think we're now worse off for it. Because you have some churches that are very, very smart and wise about wanting to teach the Word of God, but there's no life in them. There's no energy, and it's just it's stale. Then you have other churches that, that want that life and they're excited about the Holy Spirit and they want to experience the Holy Spirit through them, but they don't have the wisdom of understanding the Scriptures and they're all over the place. What if they were to come together? And, and those who are wise in the Word could, could teach those who are less wise and those who are trusting in the Holy Spirit could teach those who maybe need to learn about the trusting in the Holy Spirit. We'd have a stronger church as a result of that. But also our churches are, celebra- are, are separated over things like politics. Again, how we view solving social problems of our day, like guns, like abortion, like taxes and pandemic policies and mandates. How we deal with discrimination and, and social programs and, and all kinds of things that, again, political parties are using to their advantage. That wedge. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're using. And, and, and what's sad is I see Christians today getting sucked into it. And what's really sad to me is they're willing to, to, to put their entire credibility on the line for that, for a stance politically. But they won't do it for Jesus. Please don't hear condemnation in that. That's not what I'm saying. But, but we'll post all kinds of things on social media about what we think needs to happen here and what we think is over here. And the whole time we've got the answer. It's Jesus but we're afraid to share our faith. I get it. I I get it personally, because I am too at times. But so is the Apostle Paul. So you're not alone. But maybe that verse is for you to encourage you, to empower you, to share your faith boldly, be on social media, or be with a friends and family, to invite them to, to discover Jesus. Break down those wedges, break down those divisions. And there's divisions within our friendships and our marriages because of those hurts. Again, if we can remember that we're one in Jesus. See, in my marriage with, with Joy, 
I know because of Jesus, I'm going to love her no matter what. That's what binds us together is Jesus. I remember when I first met Pastor Greg. Pastor Greg and I, we're, we're very different people in many ways. We, we got some things that are like, we have the same weird sense of humor and so forth. But, but I mean, he's all into music, and I'm an idiot at music. Uh, my musical gift, by the way, is carrying instruments. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a roadie. That's about it. I don't carry tunes, but instruments I can carry, right? So that's my musical gifting, right? So, so he's got that, and I'm over here, and, and, and we're, I'm an engineer, and he's, he's more on the, the artistic side. And, and so we're very different in that way, but we immediately connected as friends. And it was because it was about Jesus. That's our bond. That's our unity. And he and I, we've had conflict in our, in our relationship. There was a, a deep conflict for a number of years where it was really tense between us. But we got through it. You know why? Because that's my brother. And I'm his. And Jesus and me, Jesus and me, and Jesus and him are the same Jesus. And so because of that, today, our bond and our friendship is closer than anything we could imagine. And it's because of our unity in Christ. What if we start there with our relationships? What if we look to our spouse and say, because you're in Jesus and because I'm in Jesus, I'm willing to fight for this. I'm willing to work it through. And here we go. Please understand, that takes two people. It takes two people. It doesn't guarantee that there will be res resolution. We're going to see that next week when we talk about reconciliation. But if you have two people that are willing to see it from that point of view, there's no conflict too great. There's no difficulty that will destroy it. And so that's what Paul now begins to summarize here. And, and so he says, here's the, here's the accusation that I'm flip-flopping that I didn't come to visit you as I promised. But, but here's my motivation. My motivation is not out of the flesh. My motivation is by the Spirit of God in me. And here's why I didn't do it. He, he kind of wraps it up in verses 23 and 24. But I call God as my witness to my soul. My motives were pure. My motives were good. That to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Because I didn't want to come to you and have to do this all over again. I didn't want you to see my face and for me to see your face and have to deliver those hard words to you again. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it. So I decided to go to Philippi instead. And then he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. He, he's saying to them, please understand, I'm not putting myself higher than you. No, 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 I'm actually serving you. That's, that's my job. And I'm so proud of you. I'm so, I'm so overjoyed about who you are and what you're doing. Keep going. That's what's motivating me, is my love for you. And, and, and that's, I'm looking out for what's in your best interest. So again, if we could approach conflict from that starting point, that I'm not against you and I'm for you, and I believe you're for me, I believe that you're in Christ, and that means you have a new nature, you have a new spirit, and you're righteous and holy. And maybe you're not living out of it fully, or maybe you're not living out of it in part. That part of what you're saying is spirit-led, and part of what you're doing is not. But I'm willing to work through that conflict with you together to see what is good and valuable. And so we listen, and we address it. And again, we're going to look at that more next week as Paul talks about that reconciliation. But if we're willing to do that, and we can be that church that heals broken relationships, heals broken friendships, 
and offer love now to this hurting world. Let's pray. Father, while it would be wonderful to avoid conflict, conflict has its purpose. Conflict is good. Conflict can bring that maturity. A conflict can bring issues that we've been trying to avoid past hurts, past wounds, past beliefs that we've been trying to not address, sometimes that conflict brings it to the surface. Sometimes conflict even strengthens relationships, strengthens friendships, strengthens the trust in you even. And I thank you that you don't abandon us in the conflict. You actually give us a way through it. And so I pray that we will have eyes to see the heart of the other person that we won't get hung up on the appearance, we won't get hung up on the behavior, we won't get hung up on the outsides, but we will see the spirit of them just as you see them. The heart of the other person. And we'll see that good heart, that pure heart, and offer them grace as you offer it to us. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.